Jonathan Rose is the William R. Keenan Professor of History at Drew University. His fields of study are British history, intellectual history, and the history of the book. He is the author of, among other titles, The Intellectual Life of British Working Classes and the Literary Churchill, author, reader, actor, both winners of important prizes. He also wrote the British Literary Publishing Houses, 1920 to 1965. Actually, you edited that. Edited that with, uh, yes, Patricia Anderson. Which is a Bible of mine, a collecting Bible, Mm -hmm. and um, how I first heard about you. We're here, though, to talk about SHARP, the Society for the History of Authorship, Reading, and Publishing, which Jonathan co-founded and served as co-editor for many years of the Society's journal Book History. And here is Amherst, Massachusetts, at the 2019 Annual Sharp Conference. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you, Nigel. This is not a stodgy old organization. No, it is still very youthful. I I noticed that uh, just looking around the hall today. There are lots of young people here, people who have come for the first time. And that's very encouraging because, to be perfectly frank, in many humanities departments, there have been no new hires in many years, with the result that we're getting fewer and grayer. So this organization, I think, represents the fresh blood we desperately need. So what is it about this organization that attracts youth? You might speak to the youth about that, but I think one one, uh, factor is that uh, this is a new method of approaching literature. We're not just studying the text. We're not just uh, engaging criticism. We're not just engaging in deconstruction. We are asking, well, what were the backgrounds of authors? Uh, Who were reading these books? How did it circulate? What about censorship? Was it stocked in libraries? What did people do with these books? So it's, it's very centered to a large extent on the uh, uh, the publishers and distributors, and also come to the readers themselves. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a backstory to literature. Yes, except I would say it ought to be the front story. <laughs> Here it certainly is. Yes, it is. Yes. It is. So it was 1991 in Santa Cruz with a colleague by the name of Simon Elliott. Yes. At the Victorian Literature in the Marketplace. Right. I, I, I went there, and I, I wrote to them, and I said, uh, uh, well, actually, it, it really began a little bit earlier. You mentioned this volume on British literary publishing houses. I was invited to co-edit that by Patricia Anderson. At the time, I knew nothing about publishing history, but I was a tenure decision was coming up. I thought that might look good on my resume, and why not? It seemed like a potentially interesting uh, uh, subject, so I did undertake it with her. And we put together these sort of mini biographies of various publishing houses, which I found fascinating. But we did have difficulty finding contributors who knew about this subject. So I thought, well, shouldn't we set up an organization where people who are interested in this sort of thing, academics, can can come together? So when this uh, Dickens Universe conference was called about about, Victorian publishing and reading, I wrote to them and I said, well, could we have a a, a special workshop, uh, an organizational meeting for a new society for uh, to to deal with the history of the book? And they very graciously granted that. And then Simon Elliott, who I'd never met before, wrote to me and said, I'm coming to the same conference. I've been thinking independently along the same lines. Let's collaborate, which we did. And that was the origin of SHARP right there. 
So there hadn't been any book history prior to this? No, there had been. Uh, certainly, uh, the work of Robert Darnton and Elizabeth Eisenstein, uh, Robert Darnton's The Business of Enlightenment, a publishing history of the Encyclopedia, and Elizabeth Eisenstein's The Printing Press as an Agent of Change, both came out in 1979. Both caused a huge impact in the American historical profession. Uh, I, I knew them both. I worked with them both. They were, they're both great scholars. Uh, and uh, that, I think, is what made American historians conscious of this movement, which in France, really originated in France, called Histoire du Livre, which then got translated into, in, not very well into English as history of the book. So that, I think, started a lot of Americans thinking along those lines. And uh, you could trace it back even further, a book I, I very much admired, Richard Altick's The English Common Reader. That goes back to 1957. And I remember picking up an old copy in a dusty bookstore when I was a graduate student mm -hmm. at the University of Pennsylvania. So in a sense, that also started me thinking along the lines of well, not, just, not just what's in these books, but uh, who was reading them. So your accomplishment was to serve as a catalyst for the meeting of people who had like interests, academics Well, Well, we, we issued a call for papers. We started putting out a, a, a newsletter, uh, Simon, Elliot, and I, and uh, we had our first conference in 93 at the CUNY Graduate Center in New York. We attracted about 130 participants. They represent, they were historians, they were librarians, they were from English departments, uh, and I was amazed at how well they all got on, on with each other, given they were from dis different disciplines. I've got your quote here, yeah. I saw li uh, literary scholars, historians, librarians, and publishing professionals mixing amicably and conversing creatively. That's when I knew that Sharp was going to work. And, and it has been working that way ever since. So what makes it different from other organizations? Then? Well, first of all, there is that interdisciplinary uh, 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 factor. Also, we don't get boiled down in the kind of ideological squabbles that a lot, a lot of academic organizations now have, have mm. gotten. Uh, and We don't uh, uh, venture off into the rather nebulous world of, of theory. We are very much concerned with empirical research. We, go get, we get our hands dirty in the archives. We're very much concerned with the, uh, the realities of of readers and publishers and publishers' correspondence and so on. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, I would simply say that well, the book history is quite simply the application of historical research methods to literature. Beyond the text. Yes, beyond the text, because text is only a starting point. Yeah. Yes. You found this to be a great intellectual adventure, mm -hmm. largely because, quote, we had to invent everything. Yes, that was what's so exciting, and I think what is still very exciting about it. Uh, how do you discover, for example, what's going on inside the mind of the reader? 30, uh, 30 or 40 years ago, a lot of historians say it's impossible. It's, there's no record of it. Well, you know, we've looked. If you look hard enough, the records are there. Uh, they exist in people's memoirs. They exist in the marginalia, the scribbles they put in the margins of books. Reading diaries. Uh, reading diaries, of course. Yes, mm -hmm. absolutely. There have been social surveys of readers going back to, oh gosh, uh, it was a very good one 200 years ago in Scotland of all places. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, they asked every Presbyterian minister, 
basically, you know, what are people reading in your parish? And actually, they, they reported quite a lot. The, uh, the Soviet Union was very good at surveying literature, because uh, readers, that is, because they want to know what people were reading, of course. Right. Uh, so they could adjust the text that they sent out. Oh, so oh, 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. Them. You know, yeah. and there's that, that, that uh, famous book, The Cheese and the, Wor- and the Worms, by Carlo Ginzburg, and he finds in the records of an inquisition in 16th century Italy, they're interrogating a miller about what books he's reading. Now, look, you know, everybody knocks the Inquisition. But, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But let's, give them, people cre- die. But let's yeah. give them credit where credit is due. They ask exactly the kinds of questions that we as historians of reading want to ask. Where did you find that book? How do you read this particular passage? Who did you, who did you share it with? How do you interpret this particular, you know, this, these, uh, these elements? So, so uh, uh, the records of the Inquisition, or for that matter, uh, secret police agencies are very helpful to us in figuring out who read what and how. And I guess at the other end of the spectrum, author intent, you'd read, what, memoirs? Yeah, we, we would, but you see, as book historians, we're not so much concerned with author intent. Okay. We are concerned much more with the, uh, uh, how the, the audience received the message, which might be very, very different from what the author intended. Right. I mean, I, and I book on Churchill, I mentioned uh, uh, Churchill discussed, among other things, the book The Good Earth by Pearl S. Buck. And he wrote, it was uh, a, a heart-rending and affecting tale of you know, the poor Chinese peasantry struggling against poverty and warlordism. And it just goes to show how much happier the Chinese would be if they were only under British rule like the Indians. Well, I don't think that was Pearl S. Buck's intention. That was not the message she was trying to, to, to send, but that's the spin that Churchill put on it. <laughs> Self-serving. Uh, readers appropriate, as Roger Chartier put it. They use books to serve their own purposes. And they read books differently. Yeah, I mean, each book is their own individual book. Precisely. And also, there is what, what if you want to forgive the jargon, but there's the principle of what's called intertextuality, which simply means our reading of a particular book is influenced by every other book we have read in the past. So that's going to shape our reading. For example, uh, you can read uh, uh, Alice in Wonderland as a wonderful, fanciful children's book. If you then read Sigmund Freud's The Interpretation of Dreams and you go back to Alice in Wonderland, suddenly it's a very different book, isn't it? Yes. yes. Drug-induced. Uh, this is just a, a description on the website, the Sharp website, of what you're all about, and that is... The interdisciplinary study of composition, mediation, reception, survival, and transformation of written communication in material forms Mm -hmm. from the ancient world to the present. Yes. So maybe we can unpack that a little Mm -hmm. bit, could we? Well, yes. We're very much concerned with how certain texts get transmitted from one medium to another. For example, what might start as a novel will then become a film, will then become a television series, will then become, I don't know, a podcast, for example, and, uh, and has to be recast every way. Alexis Whedon, who's at the uh, uh, University of uh, Buckinghamshire or in, in England, mm-hmm. she's been doing a lot of work on this. So, yes, we don't just stay with books. We see what happened to them mm-hmm. a- after they were published. Uh, by the way, when, uh, whenever a book is made into a movie, usually sales of the book go through the roof. Yeah. yeah. 
And you see covers on books reflecting the stars of the, the movie. Right, exactly, yeah. yeah. I sat in on a fascinating session yesterday, and uh, turns out you sat in on it too. Yeah. Uh, we had different reasons for sitting in on it, though. Maybe. Uh, perhaps you could tell me about the, the history textbook project. Oh, yes, some of my students are working on that at True University. Uh, it is fa- the most important and the most understudied subfield in book history is history of textbooks. Everybody reads textbooks. Yeah. Okay. And yet... It's indoctrinated by uh, Exactly. And, and, and textbooks are written with a, to send a very, very clear message to our youth. Okay. And they're very political. Yeah. Because, you know, and you, you see the fights in California and Texas over, you know, what's politically correct in these, in these uh, textbooks. And they also explain why people may think differently in California to Texas Most or certainly. Georgia. Right. However, libraries almost never keep copies of textbooks. They're ephemeral. Uh, they come out in numerous editions. And as soon as a new edition out, as comes out, they get rid of the old one. Why should library stock a textbook anyway? You get that at school, and you read it until it falls apart, and then they, they order a new edition. And, and, uh, but the fact is, from an historical point of view, you very much want to see how a textbook evolved over time, how it became perhaps you know, more inclusive, less prejudiced, uh, how the political uh, 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 direction of it shifted. And you can only do that by studying every edition of a given textbook in, uh, in, in succession. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of my students, Jordan Reed, is doing that with the American Pageant by Thomas Bailey, which came out in 1956. It is probably the most widely assigned American history textbook of the modern era. Hence the most influential. Hence the most influential. It changed a lot since it first came out. Mm-hmm. And he's reconstructing what Bailey, who was a Stanford University professor, was trying to accomplish, what he was influenced by, uh, what he was trying to say about American history and, of course, American foreign policy in particular. And, and, and who called the shots, I guess, too? Like well, who, who instructed him to write what? Well, he has to deal with the publisher. The publisher has to deal with the marketplace. And, yes, they're very, they very much have their eye. On the, on the marketplace, both he and the publisher, and they are, you know, modifying the book accordingly. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah. That said, it's also very much Bailey's own distinctive creation. I'm not saying he wasn't an independent author. In fact, he, he had a very engaging style, mm-hmm. which is one reason why the book sold so well, mm-hmm. uh, and his own particular point of view. Nevertheless, he had to be conscious of what, you know, what was going to be bought and assigned. One of the things I found fascinating about that is that uh, that library or sorry school district stamps are really important because they show you where this book was used. Yes. Whereas as a collector, that's an anathema to me. Is library <laughs> stamps and you know. Oh, tell, 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 tells us a great deal. We also, of course, like uh, old old public library books with those date stamps on it because that tells us how often it was actually borrowed. Uh, yeah, and we yeah, it's, and but usually with modern publishers, especially of textbooks, in the archives there are records of of um, how many copies they're selling, which districts they're selling to. Uh, their salesmen always report back to the home office about that about that sort of thing, so we can get a sense of what the national market is. So, in uh, book history, the journal that you've edited since well, I've co-edited since since it was it was founded in nineteen ninety seven. I always worked with collaborators on that. 
and it promptly won the best new scholarly journal award. From the Council of Editor of Learned Journals. Yes, that was a nice boost reward, yes, right? So in that journal, do you highlight these kind of fascinating studies? Oh, yes. Uh, We decided early on that we would not publish a quarterly journal, but we'd publish an annual journal. And the reason was, it's been easy, less labor is involved, that's part of it, and somewhat less expense, but also we can have a much thicker journal, which means we can accommodate longer articles, which also means we can accommodate a greater variety of articles. Our aim was that in each issue, there should be at least one article that interests every member of SHARP. And it should illustrate all the different methodologies and all the different uh, uh, geographical areas we're covering mm-hmm. in, the, uh, in book history. And I think that on the whole, we succeeded. Uh, at first, we were pretty much a kind of a first world enterprise. We were focusing in necessarily on the Western world. Mostly English speaking. Right, exactly. But, you know, recently we took on uh, Beth LaRue as, as one of the editors. She's based at the University of Pretoria in South Africa, and she was, you know, uh, charged with expanding coverage of Africa and Asia and so on. And she and indeed did it. We have now achieved the point where we're giving roughly equal coverage to Europe, the Americas, and the rest of the world. You quote, retired from being yes. the co-editor just this past month? Uh, as of December 31st. So this will be your last? No, no, I, I, I have retired. Oh, the past December yes, 31st? Yes, the past, exactly that, okay. yes, yes. Okay, And you got a, I didn't look at it close up, but I thought it was a wonderful gesture that you got a a broadside. Well, it was very, it was very touching, and I, I was, uh, uh, I mean, I, I very much value working with with, with uh, Beth and with Greg Barnheisel, the two the two co-editors I was with, and uh, and you know all the sharp people. It's it's it is a very gratifying to bring innovative scholarship into print, act as a kind of a midwife to it, and I absolutely love that about the job. That said, uh, precisely because we got lots of new people coming into sharp, it was high time that I passed the baton on to somebody else. I think you took that into account when you uh, worked to found the organization by limiting the time that a person could be president. Yes, I, I, wrote, I, wrote, I wrote term limits into it because so that I would not have to serve more than four years as, as president and indeed have not served as any kind of officer since then. The annual conference that we're attending here in Amherst uh, mm-hmm. alternates between... Europe and North America. Usually. Now, uh, last year they met at Sydney, Australia. Well, next year we're going to meet in Amsterdam, so yes, that's uh, uh, 2021 still up in the air. There's been some talk of Mexico. Um, It would probably be a good idea to meet somewhere, you know, outside of North America and, and, and or. Western Europe, actually. Yeah. Let's see what happens. Let's let's see what what the what the leadership can come up with. The Delmas Foundation, the DeLong family, the Book History Journal's best graduate essay. What, what are these all about? Well, the uh, uh, the Delmas Foundation has given grants to uh, support uh, studies in library history, book history. I believe Sharp has gotten some, certainly gotten some support from them, including I think the uh, uh, travel grants for younger scholars. I'm very grateful for that. The DeLong Prize honors actually 
my father-in-law, George S. DeLong, and uh, who was a, uh, a World War II veteran. He actually was uh, at Pearl Harbor. He was in the USS Oklahoma, which everyone knows capsized. He was one of the few sailors who was rescued alive from that, uh, fortunately, because then I was able to marry his daughter. Um, and um, uh, so what we uh, ultimately, some, uh, some members of our you know, extended family, we got together and we decided to endow the prize in his name. And that's given to the best book on book history published in any given year. And I believe this year they had more than 70 entries, which is a record which gives you know, a sense of how vital the, fee- the field is, mm-hmm. yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Graduate Student Prize, we wanted that for book history because we wanted to encourage younger scholars to contribute. And um, uh, in fact, one of the last years I edited the journal, of the 15 contributors, 10 were either uh, graduate students or postdocs or assistant professors. So, you know, we don't, we, we've, had, we've had some very eminent people contribute, like Robert Darton, like Jerome McGann. But we also want to give, you know, the young people a chance because they're going to be the distinguished senior scholars 30 years hence. The organization seems to me to be pretty heavily skewed toward academics. Uh, it is. Now, we do have some publishing professionals in it. We do have a few independent scholars, right? I would like, I hope, that they can probably attract some more over the years. Because I think this is a great place for collectors, really. The ideas that come, uh, just this textbook idea, mm-hmm. uh, that is a, that's a fascinating area for collecting. It is, but I think we have to realize, to be, to be frank, that the objectives of collectors and book historians are very different. As well, as yes, yes and no. I mean, uh, yeah. I've, I've talked to a lot of booksellers who happen to be collectors, and a lot of them say, if you're going to collect, make sure that there's potential for scholarly interest in your collection. True. However, uh, I, you know, and I'm not faulting them by any means, bibliophiles book collectors tend to look for valuable books, for beautiful books. Mm-hmm. We as book scholars are not so interested in that. Yeah, those are, textbooks aren't... Be, you're right, and you mentioned you know, if, if, if this textbook has... If it's been thumbed through and, and people have scribbled in it and it's got a stamp from the school board, a collector won't want it. We'd love it as a book yeah. historian. It's, yeah. it's full of information that we're looking for. But I, I guess what I'm saying is if you're a book collector who happens to be a book historian, you can find a lot of stuff that's not very expensive. Uh, true. Uh, the question then is, is, is it, do they consider it worth collecting? We just were a panel with you know the famous Haldeman Julius Little Blue Books. Uh, these were uh, published in the 1920s and 30s. Haldeman Julius wanted to bring knowledge to the working classes, and so he printed these very cheap paperback for five cents each. Mm-hmm. And there for were decades and decades. Yes, right? decades. Yeah. And he would reprint classic literature. He would have philosophy by Will Durant. Uh, he would have uh, uh, socialist literature, of course, atheist literature. Uh, best jokes of 1923, that kind of thing. Pop- all over the map. All over the map. Oh, and by the way, lots of books about sex. Pa- yeah, sure. so, so before Kinsey, this is sort of popular sexual knowledge. Um, and the uh, I had a, a, a great uncle who raised my father, and he was a semi-employed uh, garment worker in the Bronx, and every now and then he would send in a dollar to Haldeman Julius, and he would get 20 of these little blue books. So, yes, that, that was uh, a, a great vehicle for popular self-education. 
Uh, but does it really interest collectors? Well, you know, not so much, no. Mm -hmm. What about uh, membership? Membership in Sharp? Yeah. Uh, it's been hovering uh, we, at about 1,000 for several years. Is that, is that good relative to other... I think it's pretty substantial. We certainly were able to build it up very quickly shortly after we, we founded it. it. It grew very rapidly to about 1,000 members, then plateaued. I do wonder if we can't devise strategies to expand it further. Certainly the organization is very flush with funds. I mean, we, we, we're financially sound, thank God. So maybe uh, we could effectively reach out to, for example, other parts of the world, like Eastern Europe, like the developing nations, uh, like Asia, and see if we can't, you know, like Latin America, mm -hmm. uh, and see if we can't attract me more members from there. Uh, just winding down here, the website itself is, a, is an, quote, an established destination for teachers and researchers. So what's on it? Well, it's got everything you want to know about book history. It has... Uh, uh, listings for journals that we publish, you might want to publish in, publishers series, uh, monograph series devoted to book history, graduate programs in, in uh, book history. Outlines of them or well, it, it links. links to them? Yeah, sure. links, exactly. Uh, yeah. Archives for, uh, for book history. Uh, and, of course, it's also, got, if you join, you uh, get access to the uh, membership directory, which is all online, mm -hmm. and you can find other people with similar interests. So uh, I think, yes, it is a very valuable resource. Finally, what's the benefit of membership and how do you actually join? Well, go, go right to the website. It's www.sharpweb.org. Sharpweb is one word. Uh, you can, I think you can join on, online you know, with a credit card. Uh, the benefit is you get a subscription to uh, the journal, Book History. You get a... Uh, 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 what is now their online newsletter, Sharp News, which includes uh, book reviews and includes reports on other conferences and so on and other, other bits of you know, valuable information. Access to the membership directory, which, as I say, is, is you know, you can put you in touch with uh, like-minded people. And, uh, and then there's the conference. Not just the annual conference, they also have smaller conferences that are regional or topical and uh, which, which Sharp sponsors as well. Your latest book is Reader's Liberation? Yes, that's the title. 2018? Yes. Can you tell us a bit about that? Well, it's a short book, for change. Uh, basically, I wanted to write about the history of reading and specifically how reading has been used to emancipate the mind. Obviously, a very big topic, so I have to cover it rather, rather yeah, uh, uh, quickly. But uh, I included the chapters on... Um, uh, the Great Books Movement, Mortimer Adler, that sort of thing. Uh, I included chapters on uh, ordinary common readers. I included a chapter on, <laughs> on uh, fake news. How do you know it's fake news? Uh, but that's been an issue throughout history. As, as long as there have been newspapers, literally, which is, say, 400 years. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I made an attempt, having written on the, uh, uh, the, uh, the British working classes, I made an attempt at a study of the African-American common reader just a, a sort of outline of what it might ultimately be, but a sense of, you know, what issues are out there, what materials could we use. I did find a, um, a study of a black housing project in, public housing project in Louisville in 1943, and an inventory was conducted of every single book in every uh, uh, apartment, uh, as well as, of course, a study of the local public library, which is a segregated public library. 
And I hope you're all sitting down. Would you have any guesses to what was the most popular novel in this black housing project? Gone with the Wind. It came as a big surprise, both the investigators and to me, but I tried to explain why, why this was the, uh, the, the case. Yes, there was also some interest in, in black literature and black history, but not, not all that much. Uh, anyway, that's the kind of, uh, uh, of sources we might use to get a sense of what the, 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 the ordinary African-American reader in history was like. It's fascinating, isn't it? Just the fact that there's so much data around yes. that could provide really useful information that we, we just don't even think about. Uh, That's why it's such a worry that they would destroy <laughs> this stuff. Well, there, there is definitely a concern about that. Uh, recently, they, I don't know what ultimately happened, Ruskin College, this is sort of a working men's college at Oxford in England, uh, they were destroying all their archives. And I did sign a petition with other academics saying, for God's sake, don't, don't do this. I hope it succeeded. But yes, this is, uh, this is, a, very is a very serious problem. So let's preserve library archives of all kinds, and uh, eventually someone will make use of them. What are you going to do for the rest of your life? Ah, good question. I am now working on, on as a paper I'm giving here, on uh, Playboy's female readers. There were lots of them. Uh, at one point, there were as many as four million. And I'm trying to explain why they found the magazine so attractive, uh, in spite of the fact that some feminists, of course, had attacked it. That's, that's one project. Eventually, I do want to write something about JFK's reading. He was a voracious reader. Uh, he went on a one-week vacation. He would take seven books with him. He read all sorts of newspapers every day, too. Uh, and The New Yorker which happened to serialize uh, Silent Spring by, by uh, you know, Rachel. Uh, Ray, uh, Rachel Carson, and uh, that certainly... And he plugged it in a news conference, which, of course, sent it into the stratosphere as far as uh, uh, sales were concerned. So I think these books very much affected New Frontier political policies. Well, let me just say that the fact that you've read so much is reflected in the fascinating ideas that you've come up with. It's, 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 it's a fascinating field to work in. I wish, uh, and, and yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, uh, in many ways, I enjoy more reading what readers thought about Dickens than, about, than reading Dickens himself. <laughs> in, uh, yeah. <laughs> Any other words about Sharp and uh, book history? Uh, only that I think that uh, if you are especially a younger academic, uh, this is a very lively field to get into. There are some new frontiers we're opening up. For example, the history of archives. Uh, are archives book history? Yes, it is. Any history of any kind of written document. Archives determine what we remember in history. Archives determine official memory. We can't write history without them. Uh, and sometimes archives are very accessible, and sometimes they're destroyed, and sometimes they're hidden. So I think that is going to be one of the hot academic fields in the future, which is un unexplored territory. Get in there and explore it. Great. Well, thanks very much again. Thank you, Nigel. I've been speaking to Jonathan Rose, who is the William R. Keenan Professor of History at Drew University in... Madison, New Jersey. Madison, New Jersey. Thanks again. Thank you.